Hi there, welcome along to High Performance, our gift to you for free every single week. Before we get going, if you've got just a spare 10 seconds, please hit subscribe. It makes such a difference to our podcast and our ability to reach people and impact more lives. Because as many of you know, this is the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today, allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. Today, this is what's in store for you. I've always found it really powerful to think of trust as something that you give and then the other person has to earn. It's the number one question I'm asked, how do I build trust? They're not thinking about trust in the right way. This is why this language of building trust is very problematic because when I say, right, I want to build trust, it's assuming that I have control over this. But in any situation, you, the giver, has the trust. The leader doesn't have the trust. The leader has to earn that back. So realizing you're actually quite powerful in this situation, right? You have this trust to give back to them. And do they want to earn it? I think doubt is one of the most misunderstood words like we see doubt as something very negative and I can't tell you the number of times I have to follow like some guru who is like never doubt yourself and I then come on stage and actually say no 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 trust is full of doubt like deep doubts because doubt is a place of longing it pulls you forward This is such an interesting conversation. Alongside me, as ever, is Professor Damien Hughes, who, as you know, asks just the best questions. And there's a really big question that needs answering on today's podcast, because Rachel Botsman, who is a world-renowned trust expert, reveals that we're at the tipping point of one of the biggest social transformations in human history. We really need to be talking about trust more than ever And Rachel Botsman is the person to hear from. She's a leading expert. She's an author. She's the first trust fellow at Oxford University's Said Business School. And she wants to challenge the way that you think about trust. And I would tell you that you might think, well, how can you talk for an hour about trust? Well, what we think of trust is so different to the way that she views it. And it impacts every single part of our world and our lives. And you're going to get an awesome amount from today's episode. Talking of trust, I had a very interesting experience last week. I went on holiday um, first time. It was interesting because who's been on holiday for the last three years? I, I took the children and Harriet to Antigua. And you know what was really fascinating was I laid on the beach And despite the fact that we haven't been out of the UK since before the COVID pandemic, and in that time, I've carried on with my full-time football presenting job and launched this podcast and done loads of other bits and pieces. I actually said to Harriet after a couple of days on the beach that I was really struggling with this sense of not deserving a holiday and feeling like I had to get home and I had to crack on and I had to be busy. And it kind of makes me realise that even though I've hosted this podcast for over two years, I still tie so much of my own self-worth to working and to cracking on and to, you know, being successful and nailing the next thing. And actually, I think it was a really important period for me because I've learned, like you have, I've learned so much from these podcasts over the past couple of years and I've got books and books and books of notes and lessons and learnings. But actually, laying on a beach in Antigua for a week was a reminder to me that I've still got so far to go and so much to learn and I can... I can hear what these people have got to say. I can agree with it. I can think it's important, but actually implementing it into my mindset is something else. So I had a very interesting week of 
feeling totally undeserving of doing nothing. And I'm determined to be better at that. I just, I thought it'd be interesting to share that. Seeing as this is a whole episode about trust and truth um, and who to trust and who not to trust. And on that note, can I just say thank you so much for you continuing to trust high performance with your time and your mind and your focus and your energy. The numbers that we're getting are going through the roof, but so much more than that, the feedback and the response and the impact on people's lives is so, so important for us. So thank you so much. Don't forget you can follow us all on Instagram. Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I am at Jake Humphrey. The podcast is at High Performance and you can watch these interviews on YouTube as well as listen to them here. But however you're watching, however you're absorbing it, wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for tuning in. Today's High Performance podcast comes next. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Trust. It seems to be a more valuable commodity than at any other time in our lives because actually there seems to be less of it in society than ever before. However, trust is about so much more than just believing something you hear. It's trusting yourself to quit. It's trusting yourself to take a leap of faith. It's trusting you can become comfortable with discomfort. Put simply, we believe that trust is central to achieving high performance. And today we welcome an author, an Oxford University lecturer, someone whose TED Talks have had millions of views. It's a pleasure to welcome someone who can really help us understand trust in the way we need to. She's also the host of Rethink Moments, the brand new podcast that will challenge you to think in a different way. Rachel Botsman, welcome to High Performance. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you with us. So in the sphere that you exist in, what is high performance? So I was thinking about this on the way over and I was thinking about context where I have to give a high performance. And I think that's really on stage. So I have to do a lot of public speaking. And it's interesting because for me, there are two really different types of high performance. They're really different. The first is not that interesting to me, but I think it's actually really important to being a professional at something. And it's when you've trained enough, when you've done it enough times, mentally and physically, that it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. So with a talk, I could be really jet lagged. I may not have slept because my kids have kept me up. The room is all dark. The audience are drunk. I've had that one before. They're all men. The AV doesn't work. You lose your sound. It doesn't matter. But as soon as my feet hit that stage, I'm okay. Like I'm on solid ground because I'm very confident in what I can do. And I think that's where people are paying for your consistency and being able to deliver mm. regardless of what's going on in your life. You can, you can sort of like just block that out and perform. And I think that's really important. But what bothers me is I think about so much training and education and it sort of leans towards that type of performance. But the one that I am really 
curious about because it doesn't happen that often is in this sort of like a liminal space between like the known and the unknown where you discover something about yourself it's very expansive and you know when it's happening and the audience know when it's happening and it's like that magic moment of discovery and I think it doesn't matter whether you're watching a musician or a sportsman or someone giving a talk you know when those moments are happening but they're very very rare and that's the type of performance that I'm motivated by why I keep going but it's the other type of performance that I think is really about being a professional and the consistency but you have to be curious to discover this other type of performance to really expand yourself and the work that's interesting there's so many questions that that opens up I've read in the past Rachel you describe trust as having a confident relationship with the unknown Mm. which is what you're describing there Would you explain a little bit more about what that looks like when you've experienced it? Yeah, it's a good question. So the way I define trust is actually quite different to many people. So a confident relationship with the unknown. So a lot of people will talk about trust in terms of having full confidence or knowing the outcome or knowing what to expect. Well, actually, you don't need a lot of trust in those situations. It's when there's high uncertainty or there's a high unknown so to discover that side of yourself you actually need really really deep trust and if I think about it in the context of public speaking it's often when you just let go and it may be that you've really worked on that speech or you've really thought about something that you let yourself go in a different direction and you discover wow I never knew I could connect with the audience that way or even like my body could move that way on stage. And so I think that's where the trust comes from. Like if you're always staying in the, in the known, right? If you're always on script, if you always stand in the same way, if you've always reading, you know, I see speakers and I'm like, oh my God, you've done that same speech a hundred times. And not that there's anything wrong with that. That doesn't require a lot of trust in yourself. The trust is, I'm going to go on stage and I roughly know where I'm going to go and I know my topic. So I'm going to use this space as an opportunity to discover something about this topic and about this audience and about myself that no one can plan for. Which reminds me, as you're saying it, I've read a few athletes that talk about this. The one that comes to mind is the female golfer, Anika Sorensen, that divides when she goes to play a game that she has a line where she says, this is the stage where I process all the information, but then I have the play zone where I just go into the unknown and just do whatever comes at me. Mm. How do you create the environment for you to do the preparation and develop that trust in, say, your subject matter? What's the moment that you decide you're just going to let go and go to the edge and see what comes after that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'd love to say that it was as conscious as saying, today is the day that I'm going to do something unknown up there. But it's not like that. I mean, the practice definitely is important like you know that you are on such solid ground with this material you know it like it's it's in you it's inside and out and in some way you know how the audience is going to respond to 80% of it so it's like comedians right they 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 talk about it as fishing right I'm just going to go into a totally new place but I think so many factors have to be right for those moments to happen which is why I think when you're watching a musician or you're watching someone play and you know they've entered that, 
and it is a state it is a place it is it's so magical to watch because it is a very different type of performance that is still high but it's not the masterpiece it's not the magical moment so and I think like I've given hundreds probably not thousands of talks I could probably give you five where I've ever reached that performance level and I can remember the feeling I can't remember any of the others but I remember the feeling of those talks have you explored those five occasions and gone back to work out what what was it that happened there that didn't happen on the 999 other occasions. <laughs> yeah, because maybe I could come up with a formula. <laughs> no, um, I'm always decoding things. So, yeah, honestly, yes. And things I've observed are usually I've given a couple of really crappy talks beforehand. So I've had like a kick where I've been like, you know what, you've been like in second gear and you're getting a bit lazy. So there is that sort of plateau that then you have to make a decision. Am I happy here or am I only going to kick myself? So I think that is one. The second is there's usually attention or energy in the air. So one I had to give uh, right before Sheryl Sandberg was going to come out and do her first apology for Facebook. And I walked into that room and like you couldn't even squeeze in because there were media, like they weren't there for me, they were there for her. And I was like the warm up act. And there was a part of me that was like, right, I'm gonna show you. Like, cause I didn't even have a seat. It was all full of the Facebook team. So I think there is that energy and tension that is in the audience, but also in yourself that allows you to kick in and. Not, it's not about proving something to yourself, but you just go into a different place. So I think that that is definitely one. And then I think the third is probably everything sort of peaks, right? So I'm not talking about physical performance for me, but like the material is just in a really interesting place and it's connecting to something in the world and the design of the slides and the stories that you're telling, like you're just hitting all these beats. And then the final thing, and I wish I knew, I wish I knew how this happens, is that there are no socks in my head. I mean, I call like the, you know, like the voices. I think of them as these little puppet socks. <laughs> I used, you know, like, yeah. so often they're just chattering, you know, to the audience like me. Oh, I've got an hour. Am I going to get it done? Or I'm going to run. Like, there's so much noise. And in those moments, like, everything is quiet. Like, there are no socks. You can't control that. If I knew that, then, Yeah. It's, it's it's yeah it's pretty special when it happens but it's really hard work to get there Brilliant. so what can we do as people listening to this podcast who they're not doing what you do they're not authors they don't stand up on stage but they would love to be in this state really of trusting themselves because when i think about the story you just told i think a lot of people listening to this would go oh i've had a couple of bad performances so i'm just going to pull back a bit mm. oh i've just looked in the room and it's really full so i need to really control what i'm saying today and try and deliver what I know I've delivered before successfully. Oh, wow. Cheryl's also on stage, so I know I'm going to get directly compared to her. So that's another little sort of tickle of self-doubt that I've got. I find it very interesting that when all of those are things that could derail a performance, you found that they actually lifted the performance. Mm. How do our listeners get themselves into a headspace where they can trust themselves in what feels like the sort of the big moments really because actually it translates to sport it translates to business it translates to dealing with the children or having a, a crisis in your family this is transferable stuff that I think is very valuable I think the first thing is like I think doubt is one of the most 
misunderstood words like we see doubt as something very negative and I can't tell you the number of times I have to follow like some guru who is like never doubt yourself and I then come on stage and actually say no 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 trust is full of doubt like deep doubts explain why trust is full of doubt because doubt is a place of longing it pulls you forward in some way I mean I know there's some doubt that is completely paralyzing don't get me wrong but there is a a type of doubt that is actually in a place of that you deeply care about something, which is why you're doubting yourself. Mm. Like if none of those thoughts come up, you're just sort of in a place of arrogance and not really thinking about it. So if you're thinking, sitting there going, God, I really, oh my God, how am I going to do it? I really doubt. Like first thing is say like, I really care. And what is it that I'm doubting about myself in this situation? And just keep going in that quest. Like I'll sit backstage sometimes and I don't, often get nervous it's like my weird place of calm on the stage but if I'm like oh god like oh god, I can't follow that or that speaker was really great or I don't feel that well today whatever it might be I just keep digging like what is the real doubt mm. and I think the second thing I've realized is that in those moments I let go of the need to be liked likability is just the worst force against you in those situations so what I mean by that is, of course, everyone needs to be liked. But if I go on that stage and I am going for that likability, that's what I'm gunning for. It's a very different performance than if I go on stage and I go, I'm just here to give. I'm just here to give the audience a different way of thinking about usually trust. I don't care if someone goes, I really don't like her. or I don't like the way she's dressed or I don't like the way she speaks or whatever it might be. But I say to them, did I give you something? And they say, yes. That's all I care about is that I'm there to give people something. So I think in those moments where the pressure is, is sort of overwhelming and flooding you, moving your space from I need to be liked in this situation to actually I'm just here to give, I found really, really helps. It really shifts where you're at. But it's that first answer, like your explanation about Tao. It sounded very much like you were promoting the virtue of humility. Yeah, there, where you're saying that if I doubt something as well as the care, you're also saying I don't necessarily know all the answers. Would you explain how important humility is? Because a lot of people talk about being humble often when they're maybe standing in front of a big posh house or <laughs> a brand new car telling you how down to earth they are. Yeah. I think it's important for people listening to this to understand what humility actually is as a both a mindset and a resultant behavior. Yeah, it's funny. I thought my next book was going to be on humility. I've realized it's not, but it's because in many ways it's a sibling to trust. So the way I define humility is with a confident relationship with what we don't know. And I think it's one of the most underrated skills in leadership, uh, sports, business, arts, whatever it may be. And that what we're starting to see is actually the rise of, I think Gareth Southgate is a beautiful example of this, of leaders that really exhibit humility. So they're not tied to fixed outcomes. They don't make false promises. They admit when they don't know how things are going to turn out. They don't pretend to give an answer in the void of information. And a reason why I think it's the moment for humility is that we've experienced political leaders who are the very opposite of that, right? You so, use the word leaders loosely, right, in that sentence. I, I used it very loosely yeah. in that sentence, but it's so deeply upsetting to me when people stand up there and 
they think their confidence comes from pretending to give the public an answer where there is no answer, right? Like every politician's answer should have been somehow, we don't have the information, we don't know how this is going to... So I think this is a moment of recognising this relationship between confidence and humility and they can go hand in hand. Society, though, is so, I think, so responsible for this sort of stuff. Like, let's talk about politicians for a second. I can no longer watch breakfast television. No. Because I turn it on thinking, right, how am I going to be educated by something that the foreign secretary or the health secretary is going to tell me? And then I realise, actually, all I'm watching is a game of cat and mouse where the interviewer is trying to catch out the interviewee with no thought of, right, what's the best thing from, for this audience? How can I really educate the people at home today about the challenges of this person's yeah. job? And then because the politician is thinking, hold on, all they're trying to do is set me up for a fall, so they'll ask me four or five teaser questions, and then bang, they'll ask me something that makes me look daft, I'll give them nothing. So then I end up watching three minutes or four minutes of nothing, posturing, trying to look like the clever person. And I have never heard a politician say, I don't know. And if I heard a politician say, I don't know, I would finally think, joy, I'm getting the truth from this person. Mm. I know we can criticise them for not coming on and just going, right, here's the truth. Okay, I haven't had that meeting yet. I don't know the answer to that question. We had a conversation and none of us knew the correct decision to take. They can't do that because society then kills them mm. for not having the answer. The headline in the newspaper is, we don't know. We're confused. We're lost. We're rudderless. But we're all confused and lost and rudderless at times. I don't know how we start the conversation in a different way in society to allow people in positions of power to say, I don't know. I totally, I mean, I think media and the journalists are the other half of this equation, right? So I can hear it in my head if a politician were, oh, well, I don't know. You, you don't know. Yeah. I pay you to know. Yeah. Like, blah, 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 blah. Whereas I think there are examples of leadership. So if you look at Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and you look at even Angela Merkel, right? I don't know, I'm in the dark as much as you, but I'm going to do everything in my power to get the science and get the information to give you an answer. Mm. That feels like a very different, I don't know because I haven't done my homework or I don't know because I don't have the right people around you. But I think what the public are completely fed up by is just being treated like idiots, right? Mm. There, is, there is zero trust in the media right now. Um, and there's zero trust in the context of those interviews because... People are not curious to explore the unknown, right? It's like talking about things that are right in front of them and the facts. And I think everyone's just really tired of that conversation. So what's the consequences when trust does start to get eroded then? <laughs> well, it's a vacuum. You cannot live without trust, right? You, you can't walk out your front door. You know how often when we talk about trust in a state of decline, we're shown some chart that's like a graph where trust is just... Uh, going down it's not actually the right way of visualizing it because what actually happens is trust is more like energy so it, it changes form and it moves to another person or another system or another structure right so you saw this in the u.s uh when this big trust vacuum opened up partly in response to the financial crisis but many other factors a voice like trump rises up and like it or not many people trust him yep. and he understands the power of the emotional truth versus the factual truth and what happens is we start to have no shared sense of reality yep. or factual reality I should say so 
it's a very, very precarious situation when we don't know whom to trust because we are so, trust is very easily manipulated. Um, one of my favorite thinkers is actually a woman called Maria Konnikova because, oh, yeah. she, do you know her? Yeah, yeah because she studies con artists. Yeah. And in many ways, she understands trust better than me because she understands the psychology of manipulation. So if you want to understand trust, you actually should study con artists, which is a pessimistic way of putting it, but they know what information to present, how to present the information. And when you are, as a society, very fractured, you become more vulnerable to those con artists in all different shapes and forms. Maria wrote the book on the Sherlock Holmes brain, didn't she, where she spoke about the different ways of thinking. But I think it's Maria, if I'm, I don't know, mm. correct me on this, Rachel, because I'm right wrong. Because I remember reading about Donald Trump mm. saying, what does he do well? And the three things that he did well were what Maria spoke about, the con artist, that he speaks in a language that's accessible, build a wall, drain a swamp, that everyone feels they're in on the conversation. Mm. The second one was that he removes uncertainty. I will take the action that nobody else will do. I'll, I'll be the strong man. And then the third one was it was always punitive, wasn't it? That it was meeting out justice. Hmm. So it was like, you know, we'll unleash shock and awe on you. If you hit us, we'll hit you back twice as hard. Are they the kind of factors that you're describing there that con artists use? Yeah, and I think like a con artist doesn't have to look like Bernie Madoff, right? There are much softer <laughs> forms of that, right? And the last one that you describe is really important because in times of sort of high uncertainty or, or fractured trust, Leaders that often do well are not leaders who stand for something. They're leaders who push against something. Right. It's, it's a really different thing. It's like, you know, I stand for this purpose. It doesn't actually cut through. It's when I stand against something, this is what I'm going to push against. Like that taps into something quite visceral that people are looking for. They find a security in that. So when we look back over the last 20 years, how many leaders will we look at around the world that really stood for something? Mm. I think there'll be leaders that stood against something. I find it quite depressing in some ways because I want there to be nuance and I want there to be real sort of honesty that we can break down and question and challenge and discuss. So are these people that we're talking about here, are they playing into the way that a human brain is built or are they playing into the way that human beings have been controlled and manipulated and changed in the modern world that we live in? Yeah, it's so interesting you say that because... In the last two weeks, I've been sent three books on attention and nuance, that we're losing the ability for nuance and we're losing the ability to focus, yeah. deep attention. And I can't remember the names of all the books. One is um, brilliant. It's called by Johan Hari, um, oh, yeah. Stolen Focus. Mm. And he is arguing that the root cause of so many problems in the world is this idea of fractured focus, that we have lost the ability for nuance and debate and like fascinating research he's done, like observing conversations all around the world. So how long we can actually sustain the same thought or thread, whether it's in a professional setting or in a personal setting. So when I think about things that I worry about, things that are leading to this, it is our ability to really be able to challenge our own beliefs which is where the humility part comes in, and to think in nuance. Mm. And Can we get it back? Yeah. How? <laughs> Look, I think some of it requires very deep systems change in education and business. 
but I've seen it personally in myself. I think it's something that you can recognize and you can train yourself back into nuance. So one of the things that I try to do, this might sound a bit geeky, is like, okay, I've got to become a beginner at something, a total beginner. So I've tried <laughs> learning Latin, with because I never learned Latin at school. Um, I tried learning the piano. I've tried applying to do something in a completely different field and just going through the interview process and feeling like a beginner and a student again. And all of those things, they it like opens up this door where you're like, oh, I didn't know I was curious about that. Or because this is, I think, the danger of actually performing at a high level is that things can become like too solid, like too, does that make sense? Like become too black and white. And so you have to go, this is really nice and really comfortable, but actually my attention for this is really short now. And my ability to challenge my own thinking about this topic is shrinking, not expanding which happens when you become an expert in anything. So what do I know nothing about? Nothing about, And how can I immerse myself in that? And then you just start to discover nuance again. So can you give us an example, Rach, from one of those activities that you did? Because there'll be people listening to this that might be thinking of taking up a new hobby or a new pursuit. What did you learn from one of the examples where you started with the beginner's mindset? So I hate being a beginner. Um, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to learn the scales. I want to like get to Beethoven and Mozart. Like, I'm not good at going back to the beginning. The one that's really interesting. So I did um, uh, model building. Like, you're like, why on earth would you model building? Because I had this feeling I think really two dimensionally, and I can't think in 3D. So I got lost going to the bathroom. Right, I have no sense of direction. Like, I don't have a three dimensional mind. So. That's just something that you'd never discover unless you learnt how to physically build a three-dimensional model. It's those kinds of things where you're like, I don't think in that way. Mm. So are you identifying a gap you want to plug or no, a strength no, no. you want to thrive in? No, I don't go in going, oh, I'm going to learn Latin because I just go, right, I'm just, I'm just going to learn Latin. And then I go, my God, my recall is terrible now. Like, So my son can learn in five minutes what take me an hour like why is that going on or with the piano like why am I so frustrated there's no enjoyment in the the learn so I think if you go in with like preconceived it kind of takes the beginner's mindset away it plays to the power of rethinking which you've created in your podcast series about can Mm. you explain why rethinking is the most important thinking that we can be doing so I started writing this newsletter called rethink very early on in the pandemic and it was because I felt like everyone was telling me what to think Mm. everything was what to think what to think I didn't know what to think I couldn't really sustain focus for 10 minutes the world's now created to do that so isn't it you know we look at something on social media we'll then just get peppered with the things that play to what we already think because that's how those platforms are designed which I hadn't really considered it but you know, that stops you rethinking, doesn't it? Because it just gives you that one perspective. Everything's designed to reinforce your belief. And I became acutely aware of this because I didn't really enjoy homeschooling. Um, my <laughs> my kids said, well, don't know how you teach anyone because, you know, I was not good at teaching them. And I thought, you know, I just started to look everywhere, anywhere for information that would tell me my kids were going back to school. Now, this was like on April <laughs> 2nd, right? They weren't going back for a really long time. But I'd like run downstairs and say to my husband, I think it's going to happen next week. And he's like, where did you find that? And it'd be like some stupid blog, right? They're not going back. So I started this idea of, well, who teaches me how to think? 
Like, so who's actually challenging me to look at a piece of information or the way I see the world or a belief? And how could I think about that differently? And I couldn't find anything. So it really started off as just a newsletter, which found an audience. And then I thought this would be really interesting to hear people's stories to rethink big moments in their lives. So if you could take them back, and these are people, you know, have achieved amazing things or created something amazing, could you get them to rethink that? And to be honest, with some guests, it works. And other people, I cannot even get them into that space of rethinking. So Why do you think that is? I don't know if it's like they, I mean, in many ways, they did create a masterpiece or they did have this iconic moment. And it's so complete, the story that they have told around that, that to challenge that is actually challenge their identity. So right. you can't even get a chink in, right? You try and then you like go left and you go right and then you turn it upside down with them. And they just, it's, it's too complete mm. to like pull it apart or even pull a thread away from them is, is really to challenge their identity. So it's quite, quite hard. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's episode of High Performance is in partnership with MindLift, and many of you may have heard already that in 2023, I decided to give MindLift a go, the neuroscience-based personalized brain trainer to improve your focus and your relaxation. So I popped on the headband, I downloaded the MindLift app and connected to my own personal neuro coach. And look, because of my job as a podcaster, I get to experience so many different things that people tell me are going to benefit my life. And in all honesty, once I started using MindLift, I just found that I felt sharper, my focus was better. And I think something else that you can't necessarily feel is that it offers an improvement for overall brain health. I also was really reassured by the fact that this is trusted by clinicians around the world. I know for a fact it's used by top athletes. I've spoken to some of them about how much they love it. And the fact that the whole experience is customised by your own neuro coach, I think just makes it really smart. So if you want to get involved and you're interested, now is the time with a $40 discount exclusively for you. And if you want to get $40 off your first subscription, just go to mindlift.com slash highperformance. That's M-Y-N-D-L-I-F-T dot com slash highperformance. Hey, look, as you know, in high performance, we love to highlight businesses doing things a better way. That's why we're proud to partner today with Mint Mobile. And when I found Mint Mobile... I had to share it with you. They've ditched retail stores and all the overhead costs and passed those savings on to you. Right now, Mint Mobile has wireless plans starting at $15 a month. That's unlimited talk and text plus data for $15 a month. And for me, those numbers are fantastic. I've been paying way more than that for my whole life. So if you hate your phone bill, Mint Mobile can offer you premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can choose from three, six or 12 month plans. Say goodbye to your monthly phone bills. So to get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, 
Go to mintmobile.com slash HPP. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash HPP. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I'm a big fan of rethinking, but only really from my work on this podcast. And the thing that thrills Damien and I so much is when people say, wasn't expecting to enjoy that episode or... I knew nothing about that person or this isn't the kind of thing I would normally listen to. What do we need to be doing on high performance with the questions we ask and the guests that we invite on to try and get people to rethink? What do you think the role should be that we should be playing for people that can give them the most value? God, that's such a good question. I think you can take them back more to moments in time. So I think sometimes... It's not a criticism, it's it's an observation mm. that you talk about the dressing room or you talk about the pitch, but they are generalised settings over a period of time where sometimes if you take people back to a moment, I think you did it with Johnny Wilkinson actually with the drop goal. Mm. And it's like the feeling, even the smell, what you're seeing, that I think is really interesting because even the moment they pick is probably not the penalty or the moment right. they won, is very revealing about people. So I'm really interested in that. It's like, where do people go to? Do they go early on in their career? Is it something recent? Is it when they were a child? Like those very defining moments that you don't quite know why you've picked that, that there's something interesting in the selection of the story that they've chosen to tell you. Like, why, why are you telling me that? Because people do share with you, like, unusual stories that they haven't. T- why are they sharing that story with you right now? What would you pick? Yeah. Me? Yeah. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Yeah, <laughs> yeah go no, You should have, because um, this, is, uh, this is what it is, isn't it? God. Um, so my mind naturally goes quite young, so like six or seven, or it jumps forward to 18 at university. I'm not sure why it jumps forward to this moment, but it jumps forward to... So I was meant to read law at university and I was under a lot of pressure to do one of these, like, you know, sort of professional degrees. And um, I decided that I was going to read fine art. And so my parents were very supportive, but I remember uh, we all were given these studios and I had this amazing tutor. It was a guy called Jordan Baseman. And... Up to that point, the way I had done well was to be incredibly organized and incredibly disciplined. So I would make these wall, <laughs> these wall charts that were color-coded. I mean, it's, it's so embarrassing, right? Like green and blue and like red for free time. Like I like structured my time. This is how I got through A-levels, how I got through GCSEs. When I got to university, I was like, oh my God, there's no timetable because no one gives you a timetable, right? It was so frightening. So I remember I thought, well, I'll create my own timetable, right? Reading, art trips. And my tutor walked in. And I, haven't, I don't know why my mind's gone there. He walked in and he started laughing at this wall chart. And he said, this is brilliant. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he thought it was a piece of art. Like he thought like this, <laughs> this was like... <laughs> my artifact, my comment on society of needing control and order. And I said, no, no, that's, it's not a piece of art. It's my wall planner. It's how I'm, this, how I'm going to organize things. And he said, oh man, you are going to struggle so much on this degree. You need to take it down. And so I remember it's a bit like 
one of my kids where they're trying to get rid of their the toy that they've slept with, yeah. you know, their whole life, but they're not quite old enough. So it's like in the drawer. So I like took it down, I folded it all up and I put it in the drawer and it lived there for a year. Now, probably where my mind's gone there is because that was the moment that I could throw away order and I could immerse myself in work. Yeah. And that was the foundation of my career, right? Was to pull threads from all different yeah. places. And also trust yourself that you could do that. Totally. I never ripped it up though. <laughs> like but is there something there though, Rachel, around like removing yourself from the echo chamber of just hearing your own opinions played back to you? You know, we spoke before about nuance and being around people who you maybe don't feel you've got common ground with. Was that, mm. are you identifying maybe one of the first times where you were surrounded with people that are challenging your perceptions? I think it was the first time I was around people that made me feel uncomfortable. Like, right. so, you know, I went to an all girls school. It was in the city of London. Like it was a pretty linear path. Yeah. And I, you know, I could have kept not a straight line, but to go and read law at Oxford, it would have just been, continuing that trajectory so I think it was the first time I've been around people that had completely different journeys and reasons for being there even that this sounds so weird to say like they had a very different rhythm to the day so a lot of them would work really late through the night and I'd never experienced that so it was like unsettling but really I mean some of my best friends still are like from when we all studied fine art together so and it was their like bravery to create like some of the stuff they made like I think about like my best friend who like just cut onions for her final degree show and was I know it sounds so weird but she was in this massive ball gown and she was in tears and now she is like a very famous costume designer right. like it was all there like she was I mean, she wasn't designing costumes, but she was designing things that made people feel something. And I thought to emotionally connect in that way, to be able to do that, that is, that's a gift. So how do we take that principle of being able to go out of our comfort zone, surround ourselves with conflicting views, conflicting perspectives? How do we take that and apply it within our everyday life? How have you learned to do that? So we avoid the echo chamber of just hearing our own our own views repeated back to us. It's quite practical ways to do it. Like, so, you know, I read, I read a lot just for the love of reading. And when you go into a bookshop, where do you usually turn? Right, what's the table you usually go to? Like, towards the cafe. Towards the cafe. Yeah. <laughs> do you, are you not a reader? I am a reader, but I like to read with a cup of coffee. Yeah. You like to read a cup, yeah. yeah. Just go to a completely different place. Right. So, yeah. like, I never read memoirs. I have no idea. But now, like, love memoirs. So I think it's, like, recognising patterns of thinking and just physically turning yourself in a different direction. And you can apply that in hundreds of ways. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I'm thinking, as you're saying it, the benefits just for people listening to this is, um, do you remember John Haidt's book on the coddling of the American mind yeah. where he spoke about this idea of, the three big things that are causing such polarised views of the world. And one of it is that we don't allow ourselves to be exposed to different ideas, different nuances. Yeah, his work's amazing, Jonathan's work. And then yes. he wrote another book on happiness, I think. The happiness hypothesis, yeah. that's right, yeah. Yeah, he's a brilliant thinker. So that's the other thing I do is like, you know, I look for thinkers that join, not join dots actually, like they just, they pull on all these different threads. Mm. And sometimes I really hate what they're saying. And I don't always self-identify. I think we read we read too many books where you're like, oh yeah, I self-identify with that character. Yeah. Actually, it's the ones where you're like, oh, I hate this character, or <laughs> I really don't want to watch this program. That that discomfort is 
it's like a mental muscle that you're working. We just ignore anyone we disagree with now, don't we? <laughs> we cut them out. So like, oh, do what you? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe I do. But I think as a society, we definitely do. If someone isn't on your wavelength or isn't your politics or isn't your beliefs, then I think we're very quick to say, oh, I don't, I'm not listening to them, I don't like them. Because you don't want the challenge or you just tune out. I think I do chase those people because I yeah. spend my life saying on this podcast, please listen to people that you either don't know of or don't agree with or perhaps don't even understand. Just give them the opportunity. But I think generally we're, I think we've stopped chasing people that have a different viewpoint to us because we just want our own viewpoints to be reinforced. And I think like with our kids and even with our friends, particularly though with our children who you know, we all have a responsibility to kind of guide their thoughts in many ways, don't we? So my daughter, she's seven, she's obsessed with Playmobil and will spend hours building a Playmobil house. And I think there's two ways of looking at that. She either likes Playmobil, simple, or she's massively creative and she's creating little family units and she's working out what does a family look like and how does that person interact with that person? And I think it's very easy to stop the creative mind from going anywhere interesting because it doesn't play into our own set of beliefs about what life should be. Mm. So so easy to say to your friend, why are you being such an idiot? Why are you cutting up onions in a ball gown? If you don't allow that expression, you never get to the point where she's designing yeah. amazing clothes 20 years later. And I, I kind of feel sad that I think we're cutting off a lot of creativity at source mm. because it isn't improving your maths or improving your English or but you know with your, the table. Your daughter with the play... Mobile. Mm. Is she onto Lego yet or is it the blocks? Just no, it's still not really a lot of Lego in my house. Playmobil obsessed, yeah. I think the other thing we do to kids at a really young age, my kids are eight and ten, is you're too much. Right. So with my friend, her name's Holly, she used to wear a tiara to go to Tesco. She used to really dress up. She was too much, but that's who she was, and that's why she is brilliant at what she does. With my son, he talks too much in class. He loses stuff too much yeah. my daughter spends too much time by herself well if I think about myself as a child the report card always said she's in her head too much now if my parents had said right get out of your head and start like applying yourself to things like maths that are really important that would have cut all that off and I think that is I've served that a lot in parenting and schooling I catch myself doing it yeah. You're, don't be too much of that like just yeah. pull it back but it's in that muchness that there is something i think that is where the high performance otherwise what from. are you you're just dull across all of the parameters that we view life like why not be too much in one area and then as you get too much you attract other people that are too much in that area and you live a life of too much in an area that you're massively passionate about yeah you dull your identity walk like them talk like them act like them and then what's left just being unified as long as you're not too Arrogant. There are much as... Oh, I don't know, actually. Is like, that can a you, bad thing, though? Maybe not. Maybe if you find a way to channel that. Maybe that's my even own that judgment is there. Yeah, saying, right. don't be what you are. But, yeah. you know, what harm will it do if one... You know, unless they end up running a country or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting that even someone like you, so well-read, thinks so carefully, immediately goes to that, totally. that place and then has yeah. to pull themselves back. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Can I ask you about an idea that, I'll admit, I've taken it from your earlier books, Rachel. And stolen with glee, I said. Yeah, yes. no, no, I, I admit that I have stolen <laughs> yeah. it with glee because I talk about it sometimes to leaders yeah. about what you describe as the three Ds, 
that when trust oh, yeah. disappears, so we start with people become defensive, then they become disenchanted before finally, or they disengage before they become disenchanted. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Because the reason I use it is sometimes I ask myself when I'm in a situation, where am I on that scale? Mm. And I think it's really important for people to understand it personally so they can understand the manifestation of trust and what that looks like. That framework helps people a lot. Defensiveness, disengagement, and then disenchantment. It's a sign that trust is wobbling and then it's completely broken down. So the defensiveness, and let's apply this to different areas. This could be a personal relationship that you're in. It could be a team setting where people are getting defensive. Trust isn't broken then, it's wobbling. And people still care, they're still passionate, they're defensive because they want to be heard, right? They feel misunderstood. They don't quite understand what's expected of them. There's some kind of misalignment that's happening. And if you can get beyond that, trust can actually come out stronger the other side. If I confess the context I've used that is in sort of sports interesting rooms mm. to encourage leaders not to see people being defensive as something to be feared, see it as something to be addressed. It's the blaming, like that's a really, or um, the justification. So when you hear either blaming, it was because da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, or so-and-so-and-so, and or this didn't happen, or the justification, I did this because of this. So people are either self-protecting themselves or they want to be understood. So you really have to hear that story and hear that side, and I think it's a place you can come back from. Disengagement is the next stage on so if you think about that as a couple they've almost stopped arguing right they can't be bothered they're not going to go to the therapist and what's happening in that stage and you see it in teams right they are literally going into two separate dressing rooms they are fractured they are divided they are moving apart away from each other and then the last stage is disenchantment where it's, they, they've gone, they don't even not care. All they have is a toxic relationship to the, where they've come from or what they were a part of. Yeah. So the disengagement is sort of losing that fight, losing really caring about something. You don't, you don't even believe that if you told your side of the story or you tried to explain things that you would be heard or misunderstood. So you're on that sort of fork trajectory. And then by the time you get to disenchantment, it's a really hard place to come back from. And I see this all the time with leaders and you can see trust wobbling. Most teams trust wobbles, you know, every few weeks, actually. And right now, in virtual environments, it will wobble even more. And you say, well, have the conversation. Have the conversation. I don't even know how to have the conversation. Like, how can you not know how to have a conversation where you've done something that has damaged or hurt that relationship? I did it, I did it the other week. And I realized I did something in a public setting in a team setting that should have been a one-on-one and as I did it I knew and I called this person up I said all I have to say is I'm really sorry I shouldn't have done that and I just want to hear your side of the story and I'm not going to say anything Mm. oh brilliant and we moved on but if I hadn't have done that and I hadn't recognized that it probably would have woken up today and gone that bloody team meeting how she like humiliated me like so it just festers right and people leave jobs because of a trust wobble because these fractures 
are never addressed. I honestly believe it's one of the most helpful skills you can develop as a leader is to know how to go in in that defensive stage and to have the conversation. So what top tips then beyond, I mean, that great example of just mm. phoning up and saying, I'm sorry, is a really Full great... Stop. Like, yeah, and then <laughs> no justification. Yeah. What yeah. other top tips could you give to leaders? Because I can see this is useful in families, whether in workplaces. Well, I'm sorry, full stop is a big one. Right. Because I'm sorry, but you've turned an apology into an excuse. It sounds so simple, but we we all do it all the time, right? Yeah. So I'm sorry, full stop is, is a big one. I think timing is really key. So when is that other person, not just you, because you often think, well, I have to calm down from this. Or when is that other person in the right space to listen as well? And then giving them the heads up that you want the conversation. You know, calling a team meeting or phoning that person up out of the blue kind of puts them on the spot again, right? You're repeating the behavior. So thinking really carefully about timing and setting and giving them sort of the heads up that you're going to have this conversation, I think is another really big one. And then I think it's tying it to something that, how can I explain this? Um, You're not trying to justify the way the behavior, but you're trying to explain your intent. You know what I mean? You're trying to explain where you were coming from. My intention for saying this was because of X, which is very different from, I said this because of X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And you've done this in the past. My intention in this particular situation was this can be so helpful. It stops the kitchen sink thing happening as well. My husband's probably laughing right now because like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, I haven't heard you do one of these things in our marriage. For <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I spent my life with Harry again. You know those things you say on your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can you try yeah. bringing them into the home set? <laughs> so what was your intention yeah, there, exactly. Rachel? <laughs> um, before we move to our quick fire questions at the end, I, yeah. I'd just love to get your thoughts on the opposite side of that story, which is the person who feels like they've been wronged, the person who feels like they've lost the trust in the leader, the partner, mm. the friend. When someone has done something like that and we have lost trust, what should we what should we be doing other than waiting for them to build the trust with us? It's a really good question. I think it's first recognizing that you have permission to tell your side of the story, right? Like it's any great leader, it doesn't matter if we're talking about a teacher, a coach, whoever that may be, they will listen if you ask for permission to tell your story. I think that's really important. The other thing is I personally think of trust as something we have to give. It's very powerful when you think it's yours, right? So you're making, this is why this language of building trust is very problematic because when I say, right, I want to build trust, Mm. it's assuming that I have control over this. But in any situation, you, the giver, has the trust. The leader doesn't have the trust. The leader has to earn that back. So realizing you're actually quite powerful in this situation, right? You have this trust to give back to them and do they want to earn it? And I'm going to use this situation to really learn about that person and learn about this situation and learn about myself. And I'll still make a decision whether to give them my trust back. You can still decide after the conversation, actually, you don't trust them. I've always found it really powerful to think of trust as something that you give and then the other person has to earn. It's the number one question I'm asked, how do I build trust? They're not thinking about trust in the right way. That's great. 
So yeah. can I circle back to the first part of this interview then when we spoke about you walking on that stage yeah, and you need the willingness to want to build that rapport and that trust with the audience that they're open to the ideas that you're going to share with them. How do you put yourself in that place to create an environment where trust can be shared and given? I don't overthink it actually, which is really important. So I would say in the first few minutes of a talk, especially like big talk, like you're at the Lincoln Center and there's thousands of people and like you are nervous to the core and you've got to get that audience in connect, emotionally connected with you, is actually recognizing those first three few minutes, no one's listening. All it is about is human connection. And what the audience want to feel is you're settled and you're calm up there and you're there for them. What I mean by that is when speakers come on the stage and they're like, so I've done this and I've done this. They're basically giving their resume or I've just written this great book. You've lost the audience. But sometimes it's just a simple, like I often weirdly dress in a way that matches the backdrop. Like I would be dressed in exactly the same color, which it's happened so many times. Like it's almost, I should ask what color the backdrop is, but I'll be like, oh my God, like I'm in camouflage, right? And recognizing that where the audience know that cannot be canned. There's a, like, everyone just sort of relaxes. So I think that's been the biggest, what I've been doing it for 12 years now, is like those first few minutes, you are just connecting with people. You're not actually, it's not when you give your best material. And then you kind of give them a sense of where they're going to go with you, but you don't map out the whole journey. So I also hate talks where they're like, we're going to cover five things in this order. And then you're like, oh, we're only on point three as the audience so Mm. it's like the start of a journey from the moment you hit the stage you're on that journey with the audience and you're moving with them and going into different directions and I always say I'm going to give it up I always say that's it I'm done and then like something happens on the stage and you're like actually it's a really interesting place to be our quick fire questions Rachel to finish with if you wouldn't mind the three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you need to buy into oh um number one integrity Number two, I don't know if it's a behavior or an ability, but I'd use the word momentum. So people that can create momentum Mm. is really important to me. And then the third is really hard. I would say probably warmth. You have to radiate warmth around something. It can be as you as a human or it can be a passion or something. But if you've got no warmth, then... Yeah, I like that. I really especially like momentum. Yeah. It's something that sometimes you just work with people and you think, can we just get this ball rolling, man? It's a real art form to create momentum, especially when things have stagnated. Like people can come in and... Impose the will almost. Mm. Yeah, it's real. I think it's an underrated skill. I love it. What advice would you give to a teenage Rachel just starting her journey? A worry less. I'm such a worrier. I'm still working on that one. Yeah, definitely worry less. Even though you know Pippa Grange? Yeah, no, I don't. I I think um, it goes hand in hand with like being an intense thinker and thinking about those things. Mm. But like my mind will flip over the macro and the micro. Why would you want less of that though? Because that may well be one of the reasons you're where you are today. Because I think the intensity sometimes is probably not healthy or enjoyable to be around. So like finding things... So for me, it's the swimming pool and it's the garden, like just finding places where you really can worry less and discovering those young, I think is really helpful. Very good. If you could go back to one moment in your life, 
where would you choose to go and why? Oh, I don't know. I'd probably go back to being in the art room. I love um, art rooms in schools. I love the chaos and I love the art teachers. Like, I love the smell of oil paint. I love people in overalls and... Those messy sinks. Messy. I love that it's just really imperfect and people are making in there and there's like an energy that comes with maker spaces. So, yeah, if I had to pick a place I could live the rest of my life, it would be in a smelly, dirty art room. (laughs) If there was one book, TV series or podcast that you'd recommend our listeners to engage with, what would that be? So it's just because I recently read it. There is a book called Wintering. Have you read it? I I really didn't think I was going to like it. And it's all about our relationship with the cold. Um, And so she goes around the world exploring people's relationship with the cold. And it is the most beautiful book. And the reason why I pick it is because it it happened because I went left and picked up a memoir and was not something I was interested in. And literally I've given this as a gift to many people who also say, why have you given me a book called Wintering? It's like a, holding a warm cup of tea, which is a funny thing to say about a book about the cold, but it's, it's very, very comforting, that book. That. So yeah, it's a great book to read. Very nice. And finally, your kind of the last message really to the people that have sat and shared this conversation with us, your, your one golden rule for them to live a high performance life or your one final message for them? I think it would be around when you reach a level of performance that does give you comfort, whether that's financial comfort or just you know how things are going to turn out. Find a way to go back into the curiosity of the unknown and respect yourself when you're doing it because Mm. that is the very essence of trust. And I think sometimes we don't recognize when we're actually giving ourselves permission to do that because we stay in that other mode of high performance that I spoke about at the beginning in the consistency and the confidence and the capability side. So when you do go in that other expansive space, I say like really recognize it in yourself because it is the more interesting space where things happen. Damien. Jake. You know, um, when she talked about the fact that we should see doubt as a positive. Yeah. I saw a quote not long ago talking about grief, basically saying that we see grief as something that you've got to get over and you've got to recover from and you you know, you know have for a, f- a period of time when someone dies and then you kind of get better. And I heard someone say that, no, like grief is all the unspent love that you've got for that person. So actually, if it goes on for a long time, just accept that that is just you really loved that person and it takes time for that love to go somewhere else and it manifests itself in grief. And I was thinking about that when you were talking about doubt, because I definitely have always thought, oh, I better not doubt myself. Oh, I better not doubt that situation. Why am I allowing doubt to creep in? Yep. And I'm going to kind of try and reframe that now as desire. So every time I'm thinking, oh, I hope that situation sorts itself out, or I hope I'm good enough to do whatever, yep. it's because I really want that thing to be a success. I enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, I did. I thought it was really powerful. I mean, the metaphor that came to mind for me was, Almost thinking about a flower, a flower to blossom depends on lots of different factors. It might be the weather, it might be the environment around it, but for it to truly blossom, it needs to have healthy roots. Mm. And that's almost like our self-esteem. So when she was talking about 
you know, trust the process, get the work right. And then depending on the environment, depends on whether you're going to flower yeah. or not. What do you think of these episodes? Because there are a lot of people that come to us because they're like, I want an insight into the life of a billionaire, a world champion, you know, someone where we can really clearly define their level of high performance. Whereas that conversation with Rachel was more a kind of an expert's opinion on yeah. how we can live our lives. What do you make of them? I think episodes like this force us just to stop and pause and reflect. We spoke about in the book, having pit stops, the ability just to stop the rush of life and sometimes stop and consider the more important things. And I think today's episode is a great example of a pit stop in action. And maybe also there's something about us asking the people that are listening to this now to kind of trust us that sometimes it won't be a, a big headline grabber. It might not be a, a well-known person with 5 million social media followers. It might not be someone who's held a trophy above their head, but trust us that everyone will bring something of value to your life. And it might be that, you know, in three or in six months time, something that Rachel said today suddenly provides tangible value. Yeah, exactly. And we're using that phrase really lightly. We spoke about it before, asking people to trust us. But her definition of have a confident relationship with the unknown, you might not have heard of Rachel, you might not have ever thought about trust, but just have that confidence that you're capable of understanding it, you're capable of coming at this with your own views of it. So just open yourself up to listen to it. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Loved it. Thank you. Okay, it's time to uh, welcome a high-performance listener. As Damien and I often say, one of our favourite parts of any episode is speaking to the people that listen. And we had a lovely message from Craig who got in touch to say, your podcasts keep me company on my dog walks. And I just wanted to say thank you. You have such diverse opinions, views and powerful thoughts on your podcasts that make my life better. He goes on to say, I work in the events industry. I'm giving my utmost to get to the very top of my game with my amazing team. I'm lucky enough to run the brilliant team behind a sport and music festival called Bournemouth Sevens. By the way, Damien and I have had a look at the photos on their website. It looks good. If you want what looks like a fun weekend, Bournemouth Sevens looks great. Um, he then says, your podcast directly influences my approach. And I like to think our small team are constantly pushing boundaries and exceeding expectations. But then more importantly than that, he says, I spent years struggling with my sexuality. After first coming out age 21, I spent the following decade hiding from my sexuality. I was achieving in my professional life. I bought my first home. I had some really nice things, but I was unhappy truly and deeply. I hated being gay and that challenged every part of me. I found my way through that by talking and being kinder to myself. I love how you focus on the personal more than the performance whilst acknowledging their interconnectivity. And it is a pleasure to welcome Craig to the High Performance Podcast right now. Hey, Craig. Hi, thank you so much for uh, having me. It's an absolute privilege to be here. Oh, no, the privilege is ours. It is, it is ours. And what we love, right, about your message is that <clears throat> we think sometimes people get this podcast wrong, Craig. They think that high performance actually is high achievement. You know, it's about saying to them, you should be successful. You should be a, a billionaire or a team leader or a high performing sports person. But your message sums up what we actually want high performance to be about, which is your own version of high performance, which for almost everyone should be happiness and there'll be lots of people listening to this and it might not be their sexuality that they're struggling with but they will be struggling with things i would love to to just find out from you how you found your way through how you learned to be kinder to yourself what 
tips and tricks you picked up along the way that I think our listeners could learn from yeah thank you so much um yeah as i said uh, it's just it's just great to to be here I, and i love the podcast because it, it resonates so strongly with me that actually no matter how kind of successful you're being and how how much on the face of it looks like you're winning at life like behind the scenes that can be a real struggle going on um and i just what really resonates as i said is when i'm listening to the podcast and hearing those stories from people that you recognize the most famous sports people in the world uh business people all that sort of thing and and you're hearing the real stuff you're hearing the bit that makes them get out of bed in the morning or or the trouble that they've faced and for me that that's that that's so 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 powerful and you're right the reason I messaged about my kind of personal journey was because I'd never really heard anyone talking about that journey previously and I can remember when I was 21 kind of thinking about if I'd maybe heard one of these conversations or heard someone talking about this uh, would that have changed how quickly I accepted the person I was and that kind of unhappiness that I was living through and how I would have dealt with that differently and I think for me like I said in my message I, I hated being gay like I literally I, I came out age 21 uh, I was probably more outed than chose to come out and then had to deal with the ramifications of family and friends finding out at, at that point um, but then I literally buried it and I buried it deep and I threw myself into work like so much and uh, I've really heard that on some of your guests as well talking about how they kind of disappear into into other things to avoid those kind of really challenging periods and for me that that's that's what I did um until I was lying on my mum's bed crying my eyes out one christmas because I was just so tragically unhappy um and it like it touches me even now but I'm I'm almost pleased I got there because it it took me to a place where I was like actually I need to do something about this and I went and saw a, a wonderful counselor called Anthony and um, and realise that by talking about our struggles and our challenges that we face, um, you can come out the other side. I have a tattoo on my leg which says "Live more, uh, talk more, live more," um, which is just like is my gospel. It's it's my go-to. And uh, yeah, when, when I think about the podcast and about the questions you ask guests, I always think that would be my thing that I'd mention. So oh, wow. yeah, it's a hell of a, a hell of a journey, but one that I'm really, really, really pleased to be on the other side of now as well. I mean, I feel profoundly moved as you describe that journey, Craig. So thank you for making yourself vulnerable and sharing it. That mm-hmm. that relationship that you said that you had with Anthony, your counsellor, can you give us some of the ideas or the techniques that you learned through that relationship that our listeners could maybe plug into and, and utilise? I'll be honest, I, at the start, I don't think I was a very good recipient of counselling. I was still trying to be the person that I thought the world wanted me to be rather than kind of being genuinely openly honest and it took me ages to get there and I remember having sessions and then leaving going home curling up in a ball on the sofa just so unbelievably tired I don't think you can really explain how how tiring counseling can be and um but he was amazing because he just sat there and listened and that kind of non-judgmental piece where you can just be completely honest with someone really kind of opens the door and opened the door for me to being able to go okay well this is this is who i am this is the the reality of 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 my situation and that yeah i guess i i wouldn't say that i 
did counselling well, but I guess I did based on the result, on the fact that I sat around the kitchen table with mum, dad and sister and had a conversation that I hadn't had for nine years in the waiting. So I think my advice to anyone would be reaching out to that counsellor, having that first conversation is the toughest thing you'll do. And then there'll be a journey and it's and it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a roller coaster. You'll go up and down week to week, um, but commit to it. Don't give up after those tough weeks and it will be worth it in the long run. And I think even once you're in a healthy state of mind and, and you've kind of dealt with some of those demons, it's still of benefit to you. Like it's keep, keep at it because they'll, they'll stuff will come out the other side of it. And for me, it was, it was all happening whilst life was going really well on the outside. Like, like I said in my message, I was running a festival at 29. I'm a really ambitious events professional. I absolutely love the industry I work in, but God, that unhappiness was paralyzing at points. Um, and having dealt with that, I feel uh, probably a million times the person I was back before I started. It's so powerful and important, I think, for people to hear this kind of conversation. It reminds me very much, Damien, of the chat we had with Dame Kelly Holmes, where she tells us that she was, you know, competing on the world stage, winning double Olympic golds and self-harming at the same time. And I think that there will be a lot of people listening to this who um, are in your position or in the position you were and struggling. But I also think there'll be lots of people listening to this who think, well, you know, I feel great. I feel content. I feel happy with life. And I think for those people, the message, Craig, surely is the importance of empathy to understand that just because someone walks in the office or walks into the school or is a friend of yours who comes in with a smile on their face, um, we don't always carry that happiness very deeply. What advice would you give to people to, to just be a really good ally to anyone in their lives? For me, and um, this is kind of saying something that you guys say really regularly, that empathy rather than opinion piece is so, so valuable. Um, and, and actually, there, there's loads of statistics about people struggling with mental health. Uh, and my personal opinion is there are a vast underestimation of the reality of things. Pretty much everyone goes through something at some point. Um, and those kind of real sort of fundamentals to um to looking after other people uh, are, are so so uh, like important and um, in, in our world and um, in the events world we're working really hard to make sure that everywhere that there's a first aider you put a mental health first aider so that you have people that are trained uh, to understand what s- symptoms are how people might be behaving and working out a response and how to deal with that kind of situation um, you see a lot of talk about asking people how they are twice rather than just once um, and trying to be honest with your opinion when that happens so those kind of fundamentals of of mental health and the agenda has changed so massively in that space in in the last five ten years um but i still feel it's got so very far to go um and i think the same about kind of gay rights and the reputation of gay people out there and why there's no famous gay footballers and and all that side of thing i just i just think we we've made so much progress but there's there's so very much to do moving forwards um, mm-hmm. I'll, like for me, um, like an approach I try and take into every day, uh, and we run a, a, a rugby festival, so the hacker is quite a famous thing. Um, but I use hacker to mean humble, authentic, kind, and appreciative. And that's kind of my day-to-day uh, mindset. I go, okay, I'm going to take that. I'm going to, can I just be kind in a conversation? And if I'm looking around and someone's a bit snappy or they're, they're struggling, like our industry is a stressful industry, then we can at least try and 
use that approach to get to the other side of it collectively as a team. Fantastic. I love I love Hacker. <laughs> what a really sort of interesting conversation. And I love the fact that we're impacting people who, you know, we didn't get you through that difficult time. We we kind of came along when life was good and you were flying. And I think there's a really strong message there as well is that high performance is really so much there for everybody at different stages of their lives. And we sometimes ask ourselves, Craig, like why has this podcast been so impactful for people? And I think you've hit the nail on the head there that there are people that come on and that you either you don't know anything about them or other people you don't agree with what they say. And all we're doing is laying them in front of you and saying, take what you like. You know, we there is no high performance philosophy there's no high performance way of thinking there are no set rules or set beliefs you know we're not like a religion where we say this is what you need to think we're kind of saying listen there's a load of approaches listen to 20 episodes take a couple from each and create your own version of high performance and you've certainly done that thank you very much yeah no that that's really kind and i i guess that's how we would uh, how we would approach life isn't it you t- you try and take the best parts of advice and guidance that you're given and kind of mold them into your own way and your, your old your own mantra i think so no and and your your podcast has been a, an amazing source of kind of guidance for, for for me on that and um yeah for for me it, like i said right at the start be having conversations facilitates conversations with other people just talking about something and i hope that like through what i've been able to talk about and you've really kindly given me the platform to give just five minutes of that there might be someone that's kind of sat there going god this is this is really rough i'm struggling with this situation and you know what I've actually heard a bloke who I've never heard of who I probably will never meet just saying that actually it does get better on the other side. That for me is a a powerful part of conversation broadly. It's great. If people leave this conversation thinking, talk more, live more, they'll be in a better place. Craig, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, those two takeaways, Damien. We should uh, should have Craig on as one of our main guests. I mean, talk more, live more. That is is a brilliant motto, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Again, I think it just goes back to that idea of just being seen, being heard and just feeling valued and validated is uh, so powerful for all of us. And what about the hacker? Humble, authentic, kind and appreciative. If people were to take away four things that they should live their life by, his version of hacker is a pretty blooming good one. I don't think you'll go far wrong with it. Um, There's a lovely message we had in this week saying, um, a sunrise walk is what I love listening to the high performance podcast. Get the kids off to school and then work out, do a bit of yoga, do a bit of meditation. Your podcast is making a real difference for me. And a nice message as well from Jemima saying, I recently started a new job in the prison service, having had no previous experience of working in a custody environment. And listening to the Anthony Taylor episode was really helpful. It was encouraging to hear his thoughts on not having fear over making mistakes and not to expect perfection. As a manager who will be expected to take a lead in incidents, this was a really good reminder for me as I've recently been feeling a bit overwhelmed by my expectations and what others will think of me. Um, Thank you, Jemima, for sending that one in. And you know what, Damien, the conversation we just had with Craig and that message there from Jemima and the discussions that we have with our guests on this podcast, that is the... I think the absolute root of what we should be talking about more often is that people are carrying around so much self-doubt, so much baggage. I saw you put something lovely on Instagram not long ago, Damien, which was a great big long pencil line. And it said, and then a tiny one. And it said, what you know about someone's life, pointing at the short line with what they've really been through at the long line. And we just don't see it, do we? And I, I don't know what the answer is to encouraging more empathy in people 
Is it about talking more? Because I think sometimes people aren't willing to open up too much. But we need to find a way of just believing that everyone... Is that the right thing? Believing everyone's struggling? I don't know. Is that the right thing that we should be thinking? Or I think Craig gave us a clue in uh, in one of the answers that he gave from his counselling session of just ask people twice, how are you? And then when they give you the first answer, go on and say, how are you really? And that's often where people will open up and tell you something about either what's lighting them up at that moment in time or what's dragging them down. And I think when we ask that question, I think it's incumbent on if you're going to ask it, ask it with the real intent of finding out an answer rather than just doing it to, to be polite and making a cursory attempt at it. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. And, you know, thank you so much, Craig, for coming on and, and sharing what he did. And also thanks to you all for sharing such brilliant messages with us. It's no lie, is it, Damien, to say that the messages that we get coming through on our Instagram feeds and sometimes directly on email, they are the energy for us cracking on with this podcast, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Because I think that sometimes when we're working hard or we're recording interviews and we can get a, a little bit lost in the detail of it. So sometimes to be able to have somebody come and just validate what it's done for them gives us that real boost of adrenaline to feel that it does make a difference, however small. So thank you to everyone that does listen to it, first of all, and an extra thank you to those that are kind enough to share the impact of it. And we had a lot of comments coming into us after the Rangan Chatterjee chat. I saw a lovely message from someone called Angela on Instagram, Damien, who said that what I took away from that conversation is an understanding of how we can choose our response to life. That is a brilliant way of looking at life, I think, choosing what our response is going to be rather than believing that that is fixed and we can't control our response to things. Life is always in that pause where we get a moment to choose. Like Rangan said to us, you can either choose the happy story or you can choose the story that debilitates you and makes you angry. And like he said, it, you know, it, more times than often, choose the happy story just because of the impact it has on you and your life and, and your day. Damien, thanks so much, mate. Thanks, Jake. Loved it. And thank you very much to the whole team behind High Performance, to Finn Ryan at Rethink Audio, to Eve, to Hannah, to Gemma, to Will. Most of all, though, thanks to you. Thanks for backing us. Thanks for downloading and listening. Thanks for getting a hold of the book. Thanks for joining the High Performance Circle. Thanks for coming to see us on tour. Um, and if you want to keep right up to date with everything from High Performance, please check out the High Performance Podcast. Dot com. Not only can you join the High Performance Circle, which is our members club, but actually we're now releasing a Monday motivation email as well. So if you want to get a nice burst of high performance in your email account, as well as in your ears on a Monday, just head to thehighperformancepodcast.com and sign up. Remember, there is no secret. It is all there for you. Be your own biggest cheerleader. Make world-class basics your calling card because you deserve it. And myself and Professor Damien Hughes and the rest of the team will see you next time. Bye-bye.